Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read a statement this morning. This is a statement that is a public statement. It is posted on the internet. It was posted there just a few days ago. This is a statement from a church in Portland, Oregon. And I should tell you, this is a church that is highly regarded as a Bible church, an evangelical church, a Reformed church. This is a church that I have a great deal of respect for and, and, and have loved what I have seen come out of this church. The senior pastor is a man who I have followed for well over 10 years and have a high regard for him as well. And I want to read this statement without naming the church or any of the individuals involved. The elders at this church in Portland received an accusation that an unnamed individual has been in a sexually immoral relationship with a woman outside the church. The elders at this church, after an initial investigation, confronted the man with the accusation. The man admitted the immorality. He also admitted to to previous sexually immoral relationships. Based on these facts and the biblical qualifications required for the office of elder that are stated in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, the elders have removed this individual as senior minister of the word and worship at this church, as an elder, and from all pastoral ministry at this church. We grieve the shame this brings to the gospel and the sorrow it brings to God's people. Well, this, of course, is not the first time, as you know, that a pastor has fallen prey to grievous sin. And the revelation of sexual sin is nothing new. In fact, the statistics appear to be growing worse by the day, especially with the rise of social media and various kinds of technology. One individual who serves as a counselor to followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and men and women in ministry offers these words. He says, For the last 20 years, thousands of men across America struggling with sexual sin have come to our intensive counseling workshop. Over half were pastors and missionaries. He goes on to say, I wish our experience was unique. But he says, several years ago, a seminary professor told me, quote, we no longer ask our entering students if they are struggling with pornography. We assume every student is struggling. And so the question they ask now is, how serious is the struggle? The writer continues, our missions, or one missions agency told me that 80% of their applicants voluntarily indicate a struggle with pornography resulting in staff shortages on the field. Pornography, he continues, is just one level of sin, a form of visual sex or heart adultery. Physical adultery includes an affair, multiple affairs, prostitution, and homosexuality. For far too long, 
local churches have shied away from these uncomfortable and most controversial subjects. You see, it, it is simply easier to let someone else deal with this kind of fallout. It's easier to allow someone else to deal with this kind of sin. But as we're going to learn today, the Bible does not give us the freedom to look away. The Bible does not allow us to, to turn our heads in the opposite direction. Rather, the Bible forces our hands. The Bible backs us into a corner. And our passage this morning is certainly no exception as we are challenged to individually and corporately as members of Christ Fellowship to come to this point. We are challenged to honestly assess where we stand. My challenge to you today for men and women and, and young people is to, to assess where exactly you stand. My challenge is for you to, to take stock, to take spiritual inventory. And there are a few questions I want to pose and have you to consider and to meditate on and even think for the rest of this week. And that is, what is the trajectory of your life? That is to say, which direction are you heading? And there's, there's only two directions. There is the path that I like to refer to as the highway of holiness. And I should tell you that that highway of holiness, if you are indeed traveling on it, is not without its difficulties. It is not without its temptations. It is not without uh, your occasional falling. But you are committed to walking on the highway of holiness. The other option is a tragic option. The other option is that you are traveling on the path to destruction. Of course, the, the Bible is clear. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads where? Not to Disneyland. There is a path that seems right to a man, but in the end, in the final analysis, it leads to death. The second question I would have you to consider is, where do your deepest loves lie? Where do your deepest loves lie? And one of the ways that you can figure out an answer to that question is to ask yourself, and you're the only one that can do this, ask yourself in the quietness of a moment, what is it that I find myself thinking about? I have to confess to you that over the years, and I even still do this from time to time, when I am... Trying to go to sleep, Jereen is asleep and the kids are asleep and I can't get to sleep, which is typical for me. And I'll try all the tricks. I, I pray, I read the Bible, I get up and watch the news, I, I read the sports page, whatever. I, I read a book, surprise, surprise, and nothing works. And so one of the things that I have done is I will, don't laugh, Wayne, don't laugh. <laughs> I will pretend in my mind to play a round of golf. I, you, you promise not to laugh. And I will literally, and I have played rounds of golf in my minds. I will go to the first hole and I'll get my tee out and I'll put the tee and the ball in the ground and I'll hit my first stroke. And my son knows what that first, first stroke usually looks like. It's a slice and it goes over the fence and into the woods and I take a penalty stroke. But I will play a whole round of golf and you have to ask yourself the question, why would I do that? It's not just to get to sleep. I love golf. I'm not saying I'm good at it. I just like it. And so you have to ask yourself, what is it that you think about? Is, is pleasing God 
Apart from all the other hobbies and things that you enjoy and all the virtuous things that are God-centered and and God-pleasing, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is the pursuit of sinful pleasure your aim this morning? In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, last week we saw Paul focusing on the positive ways of living the Christian life. It's what we refer to as the sacred mandate. Now in the verses to follow, the apostle continues his discussion by setting forth some rather concrete commands that will impact our lives and will frankly challenge all of us at every level. And so... With your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 5, I want to invite you to stand and we will read a rather lengthy section of Scripture beginning in verse 3. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 3. This is God's Word. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore... Do not be partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, it has only taken a, a few brief minutes for us to... Uh, come to realize that this is going to be one of those serious, sobering sermons. This will be one of those sermons that, that challenges us to our very core. And so, God, as we consider these things, I, I ask that uh, you would come, Holy Spirit, in great strength, that you would convict where conviction needs to take place, where you would encourage where deep encouragement needs to take place. And it may be a combination of both, the ministry of conviction and consolation, the ministry of admonishing and coming alongside and, and, and standing with the people of God and, and pushing them gently in the right direction. And so, God, may we have soft hearts this morning to hear your holy word. We freely admit that we live in a culture that stands opposed to everything that we have just read. We are, on a daily basis, challenged to, to live contrary to the Word of God. And so I pray, God, that we would stand alone in this dark generation, that we would be saints in this dark world, that we would stand as soldiers of the truth, that we would be unafraid, that we would be 
fearless, that we would have the quality of courage, that we would have a desire to live holy and pure lives all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Pleasing God in a Corrupt Culture. And as we look at this unusually lengthy passage from verses 13 to 14, I want to have you look with me in a very slow and methodical way at three important pillars in Paul's thought. And again, these pillars have the power to have a radical transforming effect on the way you live your life. My, my hope and my prayer is that Today will be the day where some of you will draw a line in the sand. That today will be the day when you look back and say, July the 15th, 2018 is the day when I got serious about what it means to be a holy man of God or a holy woman of God or a holy young person. The first pillar I want you to see is back in verses 3 and 4. And it's what I'd like to refer to as the call to purity. The call to purity. Read it once again with me. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. Let there be no filthiness, foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. What exactly is involved with the call to purity? There are two subcategories I want you to pay close attention to as we help to surface what it means and what's involved with the call to purity. The first subcategory is what I'd like to call renouncing sin. If you have a desire this morning as a Christian to to be a pure man or woman of God, you must be resolved in your mind about this matter. Some people put it this way, there's no pussyfooting around. There's no half measures. We can't straddle the fence. We are either going to renounce sin or we are going to cherish sin. Look what it means to renounce sin. There are actually six specific sins that Paul calls on us to renounce. And as we look at these briefly, please notice that this is not a comprehensive list. There are many sins that Paul could have explored. The first sin that he looks at here that we are called to renounce in our pursuit of purity is sexual immorality. And I realize that may be a little bit difficult to see. And now I see that the... the Uh, the font is not matching from a Mac to a PC, right? Which is all the more reason that every church needs to go to Mac. Amen? Wow. Oh, man. Got a response from you there. The first sin that we are called to renounce is sexual immorality. This comes from a Greek word that you all know, whether you realize it or not. It's the Greek word porneia. Porneia. It's where we get the English word pornography. Now, Porneia, or sexual immorality, is, is a, a general term for sexual sin. Now, Chris Veldman, my dear friend and brother, will remember this very, very well. Because Chris knows that in my study, I, I have my books arranged in a very specific way. And Chris loves to go in. He hasn't done this for a while, and I'm really thankful for that. He loves to go in and just push books in. So they're not flush against the shelf. Drives me insane, right? He knows it drives me insane. So I've got 
categories of church history, categories of theology, categories of philosophy, blah, 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 right? This is massive library, and I, I, I take pride in being organized in the way I, I take care of my books. Well, and, and the elders all know that. They understand that. One day, Chris, somehow in our time of, of prayer together with the elders, I think we ran out of seats, and so he ended up behind my desk, and something prompted him to open, he's laughing, something prompted him to open my desk drawer. And here's pretty much what he did. He opened it and he went, oh, oh, because there is nothing organized in that top desk drawer. It is, it is horrible. There, I mean, it, there's probably half-chewed pieces of gum. <laughs> there's, there's pay stubs that haven't been cashed yet. I mean, it's just, if you saw it, you would be embarrassed for me. Well, pornea is what I call a, it's like a junk drawer. When you open the drawer of pornea, it's this general category of sexual sin. And it includes everything from adultery to fornication to homosexuality. Any kind of sexual sin that you could conceive of from the Word of God, that's what you get when you open the junk drawer of Pornea. Here's what the Bible says about pornea. And you may choose to jot these down and, and meditate on them later. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says this, Flee, and I hope you have something in your mind. I ask the young people, do you have something in your mind when I say flee? Not, not that flee. The chariots of fire flee. Right? You've never seen it. The rest of you. Right? That's what I mean by flee. Flee from pornea. When sexual sin stares you in the face, when you are tempted, when something causes you to move in that direction, the Bible says flee from pornea. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Have you ever asked yourself this question? I, I hear this all the time. Pastor, I'm trying to determine what the will of the Lord is for me. And invariably, I will turn to this passage and I will, I will preface it by saying, I do know what the will of the Lord is for you. Wow, really? It's this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from pornea, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There's another word, another sin that we are called to renounce. It's the, the sin that we refer to as impurity, which is simply uncleanliness, or the word I like the best is filth. We are called to renounce anything that is filthy. And so Scripture reminds us that when we lived in the city of man, you remember that from chapter 4, we were slaves to impurity. The third thing we're called to renounce is covetousness. The simple definition of covetousness is the greedy accumulation of wealth. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 5, and you, you'll find this interesting, put to death, if you have the King James, this is one time when I love, love, love the King James, the word there is mortify. 
It's a command. We are to mortify what is earthly in us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The scripture continues, we are called to renounce filthiness. That's filthy talk or indecent behavior. We are called to renounce foolish talk, which literally means to engage in a conversation like a drunk man. Have you ever seen that? You ever go downtown Bellingham or even better, downtown Seattle, and you see a drunk man? I won't imitate what that drunk man looks like, but you know what that's like. We are called to to put that off, to mortify that. The same word appears in Matthew 7.26 where Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, that is, does not obey them, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The sixth sin we are called to renounce in this passage is crude joking. That is, vulgar speech or coarse jesting. Now here's what's interesting if you look at Ephesians chapter 5 and look with me uh, at verse 4. Paul says that these sins are not to even be named. This is the, the first command in what I like to call this unit of thought. The unit of thought is verses 3 to 14. And the command here means that we should not even verbalize these sins. It doesn't mean we can't explain these sins. It doesn't mean we don't sit down with our children and explain these sins. But it means we have no, we don't partake in these sins. Not only are sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness improper among the people of God, they are not to even be spoken of. That's a lot different than what we see in our culture, isn't it? We see it, hear it, we're surrounded with it all the time. These sins... These sins are out of place, Paul says, among the people of God. And once again, these are all sins that we formally walked in. These are all sins we formally engaged in as we lived as unconverted people in the city of man. This morning, if you are not a Christian, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, the Word of God says very clearly, this is the pattern of your life. This is the pattern of your life. But for the Christian, these sins are to no longer characterize our lives. Now, the question surfaced for me. Why is God calling us to renounce these sins? And there are two answers I would propose. One is that we are called to renounce these sins because you and I, as the people of God, has been, have been graciously transferred into a new realm. We took over a month to talk about the transfer from one realm to another. The, the transfer from the city of man to the city of God. In Colossians chapter 1 verses 10 to 14, Paul beautifully describes what that transfer looked like. He says this, May you be strengthened, he's speaking to Christians, May you be strengthened with all power. According to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
Now notice this transfer. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I'm convinced that for many Christians, we have, we have very short memories because we have forgotten what that transfer really involved. That is a section of Scripture. When I say, in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the preacher is sometimes looking for, amen. Because we're no longer in the city of man, are we? We are now residents in the city of God. So we've been graciously transferred to a new realm. There's a second reason we renounce sin. We have been graciously given new hearts. You will remember the promise of the new covenant and the promise of the new heart back in Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, and I will give you a new heart. Can you imagine being an Old Testament saint and hearing that for the first time or reading that for the first time or a father instructing his sons and daughters, boys and girls, one day, one day, you and I will receive new hearts. When will it come, Daddy? I don't know. But God promises one day we will receive new hearts. Now, we as the people of God are the recipients of that promise. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a new heart. But Ezekiel goes on. He says, you get a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, the call to purity not only involves renouncing sin, but it involves something else. And this is the second subcategory I promised. We not only renounce sin, but we, we also replace it with something else. Have, have you figured that one out? Whenever you renounce something, you replace it with something else. I didn't get permission from Doreen. I hope I don't get in trouble. But Doreen and I have, have been on this, this new diet for, what, three months now? And so there's certain foods that we have cut out of our diet. And the main food that we have, for the most part, cut out of our diet is carbohydrates and junk food and processed food. And those of you that know me know that, like, wow. Man, how did you do that? You love those things. I mean, I see a donut and I just melt, right? Well, if you get rid of all those foods, what you have to do is you have to replace it with something else. A, a, a healthy alternative, as it were. When we renounce sin, we must replace the renunciation of that sin with something else. And the, the replacement may surprise you. Look at verse 4. Paul walks through all the sins, the six sins. He says they're out of place. But instead, that should be a, a clue for us what's coming next. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. That's a word that means the act of, a of expressing gratitude and showing appreciation. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, are you ready? Abounding with thanksgiving. 
One of the reasons that I challenged you back in the first week of January to write down something you're thankful for every day, and I know that you're all still doing it. Remember I told you, I would, I would bug you throughout the year. This is one of the reasons I called you to do that. Because when we renounce sin, when we're serious about doing business with sin, we must replace it with something else. And so instead of porneia and impurity and uncleanliness and coarse jesting and all these things, filthy talk that Paul refers to, he says, now replace it with thanksgiving. Dreen and I were watching a television show last night. I can't remember the name of it, but it's where someone from a a corporate business uh, goes incognito into a fast food restaurant. And they pretend like they're an employee and whatnot. And at the end of the, the, that time, uh, the, the person who is incognito and says, oh, by the way, I'm the big boss, right? Well, there's a full range of people. There, there was one individual who was not grateful, who was not thankful, who belittled the customers to their face and behind their backs. He was terminated. But there was one Young lady in particular, who Doreen and I talked about, who was so impressive. She was thankful. She was grateful. She was so delighted that she had a job. She got a promotion. She had, if I remember right, $20,000 of her student loans erased. And she was relocated, for all expenses paid, to a, a, a new area of the country where she would have a management position. Now, am I saying if you're thankful, that will happen to you? Maybe, maybe not. But the reason we're thankful is God calls us to be thankful. We are called to be a people of gratitude. Paul continues in Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is the call to purity. This is a a high call. This is a sober call. This is a serious call that also leads to Paul's next pillar. It surfaces in verses 5 and 6. And I would label verses 5 and 6 the consequences of impurity. Will you read it with me? And strap on your seatbelts as we read these two verses. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let me tell you this. As we look at the consequences of impurity, I want you to see that this is a solemn, solemn warning. It has been said, and you have, you have heard this as often as I had, there are only two things that are certain in life. Death and taxes. And we all know that's the case. Those are certainties in life. But they are not the only certainties in life. The Bible tells us this. Everyone who refuses to renounce the deeds of the flesh, and in this context, it is three sins. Porneia, impurity, and covetousness. If you refuse to renounce those, the Bible says in no uncertain terms, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, you have got to be kidding me. 
That is the most intolerant thing I have ever heard. And I would say, perhaps you're right. But this is the infallible word of God. Someone else may say, perhaps you have misinterpreted, Pastor. Perhaps that's not what Paul had first on his mind. Will you turn with me to the book of Galatians? Galatians chapter 5. And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul, if he hasn't already made it painfully clear, he does so here. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. We all know that next word, don't we? That's porneia. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Notice, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the Bible offers a stern warning in the form of a command. He says here in Ephesians 5, Let no one deceive you with empty words. That is to say, let no one confuse you. Let no one fool you or or, or trick you into walking down the path of destruction. Let no one deceive you into thinking that you can live an immoral lifestyle and when you breathe your last, you'll go to heaven. Because the Bible says you won't. He says the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, don't, be, don't believe the lie that behavior doesn't matter. Don't believe the lie that behavior is of little consequence. Don't believe the lie that you can live like hell and then get a free pass to heaven. Every person who is a prisoner to these sins... Paul says, is a son of disobedience, and in the last day, they will endure the full weight of the wrath of God. Paul says the same thing in Romans 2, 8. He says, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so the consequences of impurity, I hope you see, are serious indeed. The consequences of refusing to repent of your sin involve the almighty wrath of God. But Paul's not through. Notice his third pillar, namely the concern of ungodly influence. The concern of ungodly influence in verses 7 to 14. As you look closely at verse 7, you will see a word that should be one of those detective words. Do you see it? It's the word therefore. That causes us to look back in the context to see and review what we have already learned. And so, in light of what we have discovered about the importance of purity and the importance of recognizing the consequences of impurity, Paul here sets forth four commandments that, that, that revolve around the concern of ungodly influence. So think about this. You have people around you who are your friends, even your family members, and you would consider them to be ungodly people. Here are four commands to serve as a a, a litmus test, if you will, as to what your level of association should be like. The first command is found in verse 7, and it's what I have labeled a godly warning. 
A godly warning. Look at it in verse 7. Paul says, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness. The godly warning is very clear, and you see it. Do not become partners with them. The Greek phrase translated partners means to, to be a fellow partaker. You know what it means to be a fellow partaker, right? You're sitting with your buddies, and someone pulls out a marijuana cigarette. I know, it's a weird illustration for a Baptist church, right? He pulls out a marijuana cigarette, and he takes a puff. And he leans over, and he says, hey, man, now you're faced with a choice. Will I be a fellow partaker, or will I abstain? It's like the weirdest illustration you've ever been a part of, right? Like, you can't believe what my pastor just did. So you have to ask yourself, in that scenario, will I be a fellow partaker? Paul says, the godly warning is, do not be partners with them. Now this should be of great interest to you because Paul has already emphasized, if you remember back in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, who we are called to imitate. Who is it that we are called to imitate? Called to imitate God. And so when someone invites you to engage in sinful behavior, your first response as a follower of Jesus Christ should be, thanks but no thanks. I'm a Christian. I don't engage in that kind of activity. And so when Paul says, do not become partners with these ungodly people, he's referring to who? He's referring to the sexually immoral He's referring to the impure. He's referring to the covetous ones. You remember the Proverbs say that bad company corrupts good character. You hang around with people who are ungodly, you will invariably become more and more like them. Now Paul reminds us that at one time, we too lived in darkness. Scripture describes what that darkness looks like. Romans chapter 8 verses 7 and 8. Paul says, the the mind that is set on the flesh. Here's the person that lives in the dark region. This is the person that lives in the darkness. His mind is hostile to God. You say, what does that mean? That means the person who is unconverted has a fist that is always shaking in the face of God. That means that a person who is unconverted says, I hate God. God. Now, here's what's interesting. The person may say out of one side of their mouth, I believe in God. I've always believed in God. I grew up in a Christian family. I, I, I went to church. I went to Christian school. But if you're not converted, you can say that out of one side of your mouth, but you're shaking your fist saying, I hate God. I hate his word. Paul continues, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, really quick, what does the warning not mean? When Paul says to not become partners with him, what does it mean? It does not mean you cannot have non-Christian friends. In fact, I would encourage you to have non-Christian friends. Why? We live as lights in a dark world. We can have non-Christian friends, but refuse to be influenced by their ungodly behavior, you see. And so what does the warning mean? What's the bottom line? Three things. It means that we guard our hearts against worldly ideologies. 
Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Second, it means that we reject worldviews that oppose the word of God and God himself. And then finally, it means that we, we run from the darkness... We run from the darkness. Whenever we see a person who is engaged in evil behavior, we, we run. We run from the darkness. There's a second command that surfaces for us in verse 8. It's what I like to refer to as a godly lifestyle. Paul says, At one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Here's the command. Walk as children of light. That word walk should spark something in you. It should trigger something in you. It's the word that we looked at last week. It's a word that means how you conduct your life. It's a word that describes how you live. And Paul says we are called to live how? As children of the light. Listen to a few related passages. In Romans 13 verse 12, Paul says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 5, For you are children of light. You are children of the day. We are not of night or darkness. And so you see in Scripture this, this vivid contrast between people who live in the city of man and people who live in the city of God. People who live in the city of darkness and people who live in the city of light. What does it mean to walk then as children of the light. Let me submit three things to you. First, if you are to walk as a child of the light, you must delight in goodness. Psalm chapter 106 verse 1, and there's probably 200 psalms that would be related passages and say basically the same thing. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Are you one who who desires to walk as a children of the light, delight in goodness. Second, we are called to delight in righteousness. You remember Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, righteous all together. Finally, we delight in truth. In Psalm chapter 51, where David prays, Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me, is in that context that he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inner man. There's a third command that we see in verse 11. It's what we would refer to as a godly admonition. And Paul says in verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of the darkness. That means not to partner with them, not to associate with a person who is engaged in that kind of evil activity. Paul gives a thumbnail sketch of this path of darkness in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. Listen close. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. He goes on and lists several more. 
But Paul has one more command that I would have you to pay close attention to in verses 11 to 14. And this is the one that may blow you away a little bit. It's what I'd like to refer to as a godly strategy. And this godly strategy runs completely counter to everything that we're taught in a postmodern world. It runs contrary to the the, the PC culture that we live in, the politically corrupt culture that we live in. This godly strategy, I would submit to you, is highly controversial and highly unpopular. Paul says this in verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of the darkness. And here's the fourth imperative, the fourth command. Rather... Expose them. Expose them. Instead of ignoring the unfruitful works of the darkness and pretending they don't exist, you understand how evangelicals do this, right? Evangelicals have this propensity. Christians have this propensity when they see something in the marketplace of ideas that makes them uncomfortable or something that is evil. What do they do? They take their their heads and they insert their head into the sand. It's what I like to call the evangelical ostrich syndrome. Then you don't have to deal with it because it's, it's out of sight, out of mind. And Paul says he has a, a different strategy. It's a better strategy. He says instead of hiding your head in the sand, he says expose them. Expose them. Here's what the word means. When Paul tells the people of God to expose these workers of darkness, it means this. It means to sternly admonish them. It means to rebuke them. It means, in simple terms, to tell them they are wrong. Now you know why this is controversial. Now you know why this runs It's totally counterintuitive. It runs counter to everything we're taught because tolerance, you see, is the new ethic. And so, woe to the follower of Christ who says to a worker of darkness, that is sinful behavior. Woe to the Christian who says to someone at the workplace, you should not cheat the employer like that. Because tolerance is the new ethic. Well, there is a different kind of a woe that I want you to see in Scripture. And it goes like this. Isaiah 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, the godly strategy for you and I is this. We are to unmask evil agendas. We are to uncover diabolical worldviews. We are to expose the works of the darkness. Paul concludes, he says this in Ephesians 5, It is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. For when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This morning, we have witnessed the challenge of pleasing a holy God in a corrupt culture. And we live that challenge on a daily basis, don't we? We see the call to purity. We see the consequences of impurity. And we also see the concern of ungodly influence. 
And I think you would admit with me and agree with me that pleasing God in an ungodly culture is a steep uphill climb. It is rough, but God's word gives us hope. Listen to what Titus chapter 2 says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Now, in a message, to conclude, in a message that is literally packed with challenges to personal holiness and purity, I want to conclude with a very important question. And it's a question that that many of you may be wrestling with, and it is this. Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for the unrighteous? Psalm chapter 15 says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? And what the psalmist means is, who can stand before a holy God? And the answer is this. Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives honestly, who practices righteousness and acknowledges truth in his heart. And you say to yourself, that does not help. Because I know that in and of myself, I do not practice righteousness. That in and of myself, I am not an honest person. In and of myself, I do not acknowledge truth in the heart. My encouragement for you today, if you feel like you are absolutely hopeless, is to realize this. The only hope for the unrighteous person is to receive the righteousness of another. Forget everything else I said at this point, and remember this as you leave today. The only hope for an unrighteous person is to receive the righteousness of another. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, don't be deceived. Don't be duped into believing that you can climb the ladder and merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. It's simply not possible. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can, you can earn your stripes. Don't be duped into thinking you can earn your way into heaven. There's a British pastor by the name of John Stott who went to be with the Lord just a few years ago. And he said something that literally just blew my socks off, and I hope it does for you as well. He says this, God intended the law, that is his holy law, to reveal sin and to drive people to Christ. Now think about this. The role of the law of God in Scripture is to drive you to the Savior. But Stott continues. He says this, Satan uses the law to reveal sin and to drive you to despair. You see, the devil is a formidable foe. He takes what is good, that is the law of God, and he reminds you of your sin. And he also reminds you that you will be defeated forever. That when you die, you will perish for all eternity in hell. But Stott continues... He says that God meant the law, that is his holy law, to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac. That blew me away. 
So the only hope for the unrighteous is to receive the righteousness of another. For our sake, he made him sin. That is, God made Jesus sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have you received that righteousness this morning? Do you know the God of the universe? Have you banked all your hope and future exclusively on him? If you're not a Christian this morning, I urge you to turn from your sin and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ so you can stand in the presence of a holy God and have all your sins that you've ever committed and ever will commit forgiven. Finally, for Christians here, and I'm sure there are many, who are struggling to please God in, a holy, in, in an unholy culture, you must turn your attention to God's way. You must turn your attention to God's high and holy standard and realize that, that you are engaged in an ideological battle. The battle lines have already been drawn. I read a book this week. Uh, it's a book that will come out in September. And the writer says this, The world says humans are basically good. The Bible says humans are sinners who face the judgment of God. The world says human sexuality is a matter of personal preference. The Bible says sex is given in the context of marriage between only a man and a woman. The world says gender is fluid. The Bible says gender is given at birth. The world says that desire is sovereign. And the Bible calls us to self-control and self-denial. The world says that we are victims, victims, victims of our circumstances. The Bible says our sinful desires shape how we respond to our circumstances. I want to challenge you to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And you do it by living the life of faith. By walking with Jesus, which involves saying no to the world, the flesh, and the devil which involves fleeing from unrighteousness, I want to encourage you to refuse to allow the lure of a fallen world to dupe you, to deceive you. Rather, may you live to please a holy God in the midst of a corrupt and ungodly culture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge in your word. I want to pray for, for Christians today who may be struggling with any or all of the sins that we have explored. That today would be a day where they would draw the line in the sand and say, God, by your grace and through faith, I commit now to walking in a pure fashion. I acknowledge the seriousness of what it means to, to be captivated by sin. And I choose to walk in a way that pleases God and realize I can't do it on my own. It's the Holy Spirit that compels me and comforts me and consoles me. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers me. So help me to do that now. May I go forward from this day forward to live a life that is pleasing to you, God. And for those who are not yet followers of Christ, God, I ask that you'd, you'd draw someone to the cross today. I pray that they'd realize their hopeless condition apart from grace. That they would realize their hopeless condition apart from Jesus and the work that he performed on the cross all to the glory of God. Would you cry out to God and admit your sin? 
Would you cry out to God and admit that you're a sinner and acknowledge that you need to turn from your sin? You need to repent from your sinful ways and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept the completed work of Christ on your behalf. Lord, these are exciting times for a church family. I pray that you would continue to shower your grace on our church family. Enable us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you in this corrupt culture that we live in now. In Jesus' name, amen.